0: Hello and welcome to the Flowcode Podcast, where we're dedicated to spreading the ideals of open source development, community collaboration, and engineering innovation. I'm your host, James O'Reilly, a civil structural engineer based in Vancouver, BC, Canada. Our mission is to empower engineers across the globe through a multi-dimensional approach to learning. We dive deep into technical topics, especially Python's potential in civil and structural engineering, alongside broader engineering-focused subjects like soft skills, economics, science, modern technologies, and industry trends. I'm extremely passionate about Python's application in our field, but I want to emphasize that Flowcode's overarching goal is about fostering growth and continuous improvement. So we talk about a lot more than Python on this podcast. Check out the Flowcode newsletter on Substack for more. The links are all in the description, and with that said, let's dive into today's episode. Hello, everybody out there, and welcome back to another episode of Flowcode. My name is James O'Reilly, and today I am very privileged to present my first guest on the Flowcode podcast. His name is Jeremy Hale, a very distinguished figure in the world of engineering here in Canada and globally. Jeremy is the definition of an industry leader. He won the 2022 Canadian Consulting Engineer Lifetime Achievement Award. And first of all, I'd like to thank Jeremy for being my canary in the coal mine as my first guest on this podcast. And he's about as handsome and gracious of a canary that you could possibly ask for. So just to add some context, Jeremy is a civil engineer with a very broad and diverse background in global mining, water resources, and hydropower projects. And his journey began in Rhodesia, which is now Zambia and Zimbabwe, which we will discuss. He attained a degree in engineering sciences and economics in 1972 at Oxford University, followed by a master's in soil mechanics at Imperial College London. He's had a rich career spanning over five decades, and Jeremy has been a pivotal force behind Night Peace Old Canada, which is where I work. Now he's semi-retired, but he does continue to assist on a lot of our major projects, chipping in with advice and ideas whenever he can, because he still loves it. And today we talk about his career and some of his perspectives on engineering, and he shares some of the lessons, tools and philosophies that have guided him along his path. Jeremy's insights have shaped the industry as a whole and a lot of the, and the careers of many engineers and above all of that he really is just a pleasure to talk to and hang around with i'm very very grateful for his time and i hope that wherever you are in the world listening to this that you can take something away from today's rich discussion before we, before we even start i'll just explain what what this whole experiment is all about yeah so Doing an experiment like this where I get to talk to people that have had great experience. Mm -hmm. like This is a perfect excuse for me to ask you a bunch of questions Mm -hmm. about your career and for me to learn and for you to share stuff that you wish you had known Mm -hmm. years ago. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how often you get to sit down and tell other engineers that kind of stuff. Probably not as often as you would like. Yeah. And that's why I'm doing this because it will stimulate my own growth and I can share it with other people who, like, I wish there was something like this when I was younger, Mm -hmm. starting out Mm -hmm. as an engineer, to understand the perspectives of more experienced people. Right. So that's kind of the overarching goal of this.
1: Well, tell me a little bit more about yourself, because we haven't had this sort of long chat ourselves. So where where did you, I mean, what got you into engineering and where did you study and how did you end up here?
0: Well, I grew up on a farm in Ireland and Mm -hmm. you know what, I'll just do a quick introduction because. Okay. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Flowcode podcast. I got a fantastic engineer on board today and his name is Jeremy Hale. And I won't get too deeply into his background, other than to say he's had an incredible career. And we'll dig into some of the details as we chat. So welcome aboard, Jeremy. Thank you, James. So you were asking, yeah, I started in, I grew up on a farm in Ireland. And my dad said, you need to get into engineering. Because you never stop criticizing the ways that we do things here on the farm. Mm-hmm. So maybe you need to get paid for that instead.
1: <laughs>
0: and I had actually originally wanted to do journalism, which is like a weird coincidence. And um, yeah, I ended up getting into structural engineering. And then I just lo- I loved it. Right. I loved uh, the mechanics of it, the materials. It's, right. uh, it's fascinating. And just physics in general. I, I love that stuff. But you are... So where did you study? Oh, uh, Edinburgh and Napier University. Right. And that's where I got my um, my civil engineering undergrad. And then I did a master's in advanced structures there.
1: That's at, in, in Edinburgh as well? Yeah. 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 And how did you end up here? How did you get here?
0: moved straight away to Vancouver to snowboard. Mm-hmm. And then um, after a year, I started working at Clone Crippenberger. Mm-hmm. Doing all sorts of heavy civil bridge work. Right. I was there for eight years, mm-hmm. almost nine years, and then I came to my Peace Old. Okay, good. I've been here just over five years. Right, good. And what about you? You started in geotech?
1: Well, I actually started in... Uh, I did a... Um, I mean, yeah, let's just go back a little bit. I mean, yeah. I, I got into... I was very fortunate in terms of where I grew up. It was, uh, it was Central Africa in the 1950s and 60s. A lot was happening. So, I mean, my early days, I, I actually grew up on a mining town that was being built around us. So, my dad was the district commissioner and working for the government, the uh, provincial government there. And I saw all this construction going on all around me. And so this is when I was sort of three to six years old. Yeah. From six to nine years old, I lived on the edge of an active mine and we used to go playing on tailings dams. That was our playground. <laughs> yeah. So I got to walk on drying tailings beaches and I could tell whether they were, uh, what the strength was and whether there was a risk of sinking. So yeah, yeah. We got to feel that from very, very
0: early days. Dam safety assessments.
1: Yeah, and then they were, so we, we, I was sent away to boarding school, we went by train. From somewhere in northern Rhodesia, as it was then, to Bulawayo in southern Rhodesia, I did that for 11 years, and crossed the the bridge at Victoria Falls. Um, there was large hydro schemes being built. There was Kariba Dam under construction at that time. We used to have newsreels at school every every week on construction of Kariba. Yeah. Which was fascinating stuff. Yeah. And then when I actually finished high school i actually had 9 months oh, no, i know i between i had 9 months between le- finishing my a levels and getting accepted for university in england and starting and i actually worked on for a company who was the, the designers for the Kafui hydroelectric scheme in zambia so at the age of 18 i was doing underground survey in headrace tunnels oh my god and then i was sent out onto an access road job and i actually ended up running the soils lab for the whole road, for 200 kilometers of road, doing all the soils testing and being in charge of the lab before I'd even gone to university. So, <laughs> which was a real opportunity, actually. It was amazing.
0: Yeah, hit the ground running. Hit
1: the ground running, yeah. But then my first degree was actually just in engineering science, so it didn't specialize in anything in particular. Yeah. And uh, it was just a broad engineering degree. And then I went back five years later and did a Master's in Soil Mechanics, and that's where I got into the soils geotech.
0: That's when you learned how to actually run a lab.
1: That's when I learned why we were doing it all, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 So it was, it was a rather roundabout way of getting there, but that was uh, what I ended up specializing in.
0: And then you finished your Master's in, what, the, what, the mid-70s?
1: Yeah, seventy eight. And then yeah. came to Canada? Yeah, so I've been working for the company since I actually had a job with them when I graduated from my first degree. Yeah. So I've been working in, in Malawi and Africa and Zambia and then in England for, for a year. And then I went to Imperial College to do my master's. Yeah. And then they transferred me out here to Vancouver, which I, and I arrived in January 1979 and there were three people in the office, I was number four, and it was just a great opportunity, and we were working, first job was uh, design of a tailings dam for a uranium mine in northern Saskatchewan, so uh, that was interesting, because, you know, learning about cold regions engineering in practice, I mean, I'd done some that at Imperial College, but I hadn't actually experienced it.
0: There's so there's so many things to consider that you you have you almost have to have the experience. It's difficult mm-hmm. to to learn about it. Yeah. Um. Well, there's a few things that I want to ask you here because you have seen tremendous shifts and changes in the industry since you started. Stuff like. You know, normally I talk about computer programming for civil and structural work, but you came in when it was everything was hand calcs, everything was hand drawing. Mm-hmm. So all of the project management, everything was like manual, memory, and word of mouth communication. Very limited in terms of what we have in terms of what we have today.
1: Right, and very time-consuming. even you know, long-hand calculations for... I mean, I came in when surveying was done. Uh, all the survey calculations we did on the construction sites in, in Africa where I was working, uh, we used um, log- big books of log- logarithm tables to do the calculations. And it would take you ages to do just to, you know, to do a simple series of calculations to work out coordinates.
0: But what do you think about that? Like, I mean... We lean so heavily on these tools now, whereas you were forced to develop a like thorough understanding of what you're doing.
1: Um, yes and no. I mean, we, we, we spent a lot of time just doing basic calculations, so you didn't have as much time to do. It was very hard to do sensitivity analyses because that would take you an inordinate amount of time to, mm-hmm. just to change various parameters. You'd have to go back. To page one of maybe a twenty-page calculation yeah. exercise.
0: Yeah, yeah. So you have to pick your shots very <laughs> carefully. You've got
1: to be very careful getting the right numbers to begin with, um, and you don't have as much time to reflect on the real meaning of of what it's all about and what you're doing and the different aspects of the job.
0: Interesting.
1: Um, so it was a bit. It was a lot more limiting in terms of what you focused on.
0: Yeah. So uh, depth of understanding rather than breadth, almost.
1: Right, right. I mean, doing a stability analysis. I mean, uh, Bishop's method of slices was new, but to do one slip surface might take you three or four hours of calculation. Wow. One, and you had to choose it in advance, and you're not necessarily going to choose the most critical one first. Of course, you wouldn't know until you'd done several of them, and that was just a, that would, could have been a week of doing. A dozen different slip surfaces. Whereas today you would do that in what half an hour?
0: Yeah, yeah. And you do
1: th- hundreds in half an hour and come up with a, with a critical one? Well, the computer would choose the critical one for Yes.
0: Me. Yeah. Exactly. You're just entering in geometry and parameters. Right. Right. And it, take, it takes care of the rest. But I, I still believe that the re- the reliance on commercial software is increasing all the time. And right people lean so heavily on it and if you were to dig into you know what's the software doing or what's going on a lot of people they they don't know and even the support teams don't know when you contact these places so it's a it's a double-edged sword i think
1: yeah so i think that you know the beauty of of all the experience you get doing multiple different calculations over time and seeing everything is that you can tell looking at at a, say something that's done today is it in the right ballpark? Yeah. you know is is this believable
0: yeah there's a, a great quote um, I do a lot of, uh, of jiu-jitsu and grappling and there's a great coach a quote from a coach his name is uh, jean-jacques Machado and he said to to use a little you have to know a lot so I think that's a, like a good analogy of what you mean. Like you've got to feel yeah. a sensitivity, a feel for it, but you can't just learn that. That takes years of experience,
1: right, right? And seeing lots and lots of different situations, and actually experiencing failures as well, seeing when things have gone wrong.
0: So that's something I want to ask you about. Um, but before I do, the one something that I w- always want to ask people is. If you had to summarize your your life philosophy or your engineering philosophy in one or two sentences, how would you do that?
1: Oh, that's that's always a difficult question.
0: Yeah.
1: But I I I try and being honest about it. It's doing what I really enjoy and having fun doing it. Yeah.
0: Which is not always possible.
1: <laughs> not always possible, but that's that's what I strive but, to but do. But that's
0: the objective.
1: Yeah,
0: yeah. And people I one. enjoy working with. That's very similar to mine. Um, yeah, Mine is, you know, I'm the happiest when I have m- momentum, and I feel like there's momentum and growth, but I always am trying to nurture the connections with the people that, that matter the most to me. Mm-hmm. So those like family and friends and things like that. Right. Um so quite similar. Um so tell me about some of the biggest learning moments for you or some of the toughest times in your career. Can you remember any like panic station situations?
1: Well, there've been there've been a few few times when when things have gone wrong again, you know, I mean things do go wrong. Yeah. Um, and there's a, there's a learning process there, of course, but I mean, we had a, uh, there's probably a couple of times where sort of things stacked up a little bit, and uh, once was in the early 90s here in 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 Vancouver, and uh, we, uh, well, first off, well, yeah, just to get the order right, yeah, we'd worked on a project, a tailings dam in Guyana. And there was a failure down there. And, and we, basically, we had done the first design and then we'd, we'd, we'd actually gone in for bids for ongoing engineering services and we had lost out to Golder Associates. And so they became the engineer carrying on. But what that, um, there was a commission of inquiry and they went out of their way to try and put the blame on us. And we knew it had nothing to do with what we had done. So we had to fight a big rearguard action there to sort of try and get our word out, which wasn't that easy at the time hmm. uh, just about the same time one of the first small hydro schemes we'd done uh was being commissioned it's, it was on a on scuzzy creek up near boston bar yep and a an anchor block on a penstock gave way and um and the uh Anyway, there were so so the the penstock moved a little bit and came off an expansion joint, uncoupled. Which I guess they meant to move during operation. No, just commissioning. But it, what it meant there was un, there was, uh, unre, you know, water was just pouring down the hillside from this open penstock. Fortunately, there was a check valve in the system up mm-hmm. up above, so it stopped mm-hmm. it after a little while. Mm-hmm. But um, it caused that was an early morning. Weekend telephone call, which wasn't very much fun to get, and headed up there to have it see what had happened, and so balancing those two things happening at the same time were, were kind of pretty significant for a small office as we were here mm-hmm. at that time. Mm-hmm. But learning, you know, learning from the experience. I mean, one on on the first case, the the, the Tailings Dam failure was. Um, never be shy to get a, get your story out quickly because and most people you know only first impressions uh, sorry you only get one chance to make a first impression is is the same mm-hmm. and what people hear initially is what they tend to remember interesting um, on the second one on the on the Scudzi Creek one it was a very very simple case of not People, uh, the person who did the structural design for us then just um, missed something and didn't think he needed to get proper reviews done. And so that was a, a, a complete failure of our quality assurance in the office, mm. which was a big wake-up call. And it would have been so easy to avoid. It was just, in in his calculations, he missed one particular force off the, the force diagram, whatever you do as a structural engineer and... Mm-hmm. Um, and that caused the, the anchor block to buckle.
0: Huge thrust loads on yeah. penstock absolutely. bends. Yeah, absolutely,
1: um. yeah. But this was an unsupported vertical un, a, a vertical bend in space where, in fact, the horizontal thrust on that bend gets transferred back to the anchor block up above it. And because it wasn't, there wasn't anything else there, he just assumed it was kind of a floating pipe. Mm. And, and I think that's probably not a, you know, it may, may be a conceptually a hard thing for some people to visualize yeah. what forces are there. Yeah. But yeah. Um, anyway, so that, but, but our problem, our, our deficiency was we didn't have the right uh, checks and balances in place.
0: And so that presumably led you into the development of what we now have, which is an incredibly robust internal management system
1: yeah, yeah I mean it was one one of the many things that led us that way but certainly it's been my mantra always that you know things go wrong where people work in isolation where they think they don't need something to be checked yeah and if you don't have even if it's the most trivial thing if it's you know everything is worth checking and everything uh, engineers tend to be a little private perhaps of what they're doing And maybe even a little shy of asking people to check things. Yeah, and that's when things go wrong.
0: Yeah, that's that's definitely true. And even uh, just from an oversight perspective, it's kind of hard to know, you know, if you give me a task to do, and I do it, like how deeply do you check everything? You know, you go through, you spend a bunch of time because we don't have unlimited budgets, so right, right, you have to pick and choose the checkpoints and the milestones of what makes the most sense. It's always a challenge, I find.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, And in in those days, I mean this was we, we were we were doing the design on a it was a it was a fixed price design build for a contractor and we had a fixed we had actually brought in the contractor to do this. So there was kind of almost like an obligation to make sure everything went very well on this job. Yeah. Um but we had a very minimal budget to design the whole thing yeah 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 so no cool.
0: science projects allowed get it done quickly yeah um so those were big learning experiences yeah, definitely and it's interesting how those you know it's, you remember those a lot more clearly than perhaps the stuff that just went really well
1: yeah yeah, I mean it's 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 wonderful when everything goes well. And no, I mean I do remember those. There's been some fantastic occasions when things have gone well.
0: Yeah. So now that we have the negative memories out of your system, what are what are some of the things that you find the most fulfilling about the the role of an engineer, more so than the industry, or just like the role, the role that you've had on projects. What do you find the most fulfilling part of it?
1: Um, I mean, I've always loved physical geography. You know, that that's been my sort of thing growing up. Is walking in the bush, climbing hills, climbing mountains, following rivers. Where do they go? Why? Do, you know. Yeah. Where does everything end up? Which ocean? You know. Yeah. Yeah. Things like that, so that the, the physical layout of projects is something I really, really enjoy being involved in in an early conceptual stage. Yeah, me too. Yeah, and you know, and I just sometimes I, I have to pinch myself when I feel you know I'm flying around BC in helicopters looking at potential hydroelectric sites, and I'm getting paid to do it. You know, and I just couldn't believe my good luck. Yeah, but that that's certainly one thing I'm really passionate about is is kind of layouts and geography.
0: Yeah, me too. Um it's like a blank a blank canvas and yeah, yeah, how, yeah. especially at the beginning because yeah. it's wide open. The best idea wins. This is right. this is what you've got right here, like can you utilize the landscape in the right. best way? Yeah. Yeah. Where are the materials going to come from? How's it going to fit together? It's a, it's absolutely, a, it's absolutely. the most fun part.
1: Yeah, absolutely um but then following it through to fruition and actually actually seeing things get built i mean that is the other really important thing of engineering to me is you know it's not a it's not a it doesn't end up as a report on the shelf of course we do lots of those but but a lot of things
0: get built yeah, that's yeah. the
1: satisfying part
0: i remember uh, a guy told me once the best engineering you'll do is the stuff that never gets built and it's like it's good <coughs> it's good for learning but you can't, yeah. yeah, it's not battle tested. Yeah, you need to get it out and it needs to be built.
1: Right, right. Well, we've we've been lucky in that respect there's a lot of things we've done in this office have, got, you know, do get built. Yeah, and so there's always been that combination of, of fields experience and design experience that, yeah. that you can't. I strongly believe you can't do one without the other. No. So, when, I mean, when I started work, I mean, I spent my first four years on construction sites, and that was, that was very, very important.
0: Your experience before you went to university was probably such a huge advantage over everybody else that didn't have that, because you can contextualize what you're actually learning about. Um, yeah. Once you saw the theory, you were probably like, ah, oh, this rings a bell yeah i did this yeah yeah um the next thing i want to ask you about is your approach to problem solving how you like to frame problems how you like to work your way through a problem it could be a technical problem could be a business problem could be a communications problem like what is your general approach to how you like to handle them
1: Again, it's, I've never never really thought about this in the past, but I think the what what occurred to me just reading those questions. Um, it's really important to isolate problems if you want to. You know, if you're having a problem, um, they never come one at a time. <laughs> I find yeah. you get dumped on with a number of different things, whether they're issues with relationships or. Offspring, or office, or colleagues, or clients, or finances, or whatever—you know—many, many things out there, which which we all have to deal with to make life go around. Yeah, but I really try and isolate issues. So, I mean, I don't feel if you have all these balls being juggled at the same time, you can't you can't deal with them all together at the same time. So, I try and devote time for particular. I try and Identify the problem, isolate them, devote time to deal with with a particular problem, and you may not get to the end, but you get to as far as you can get in that time, mm. and then sort of put it on a shelf and and deal. You've probably got something else you have to do, so you mm. get on with that.
0: You, like chip away at it,
1: and you chip away at these different things, but you give them you give them undivided attention for set periods of time, and then you find you can actually. You can actually start ticking them off.
0: You've raised you a, You've raised an interesting you know, undivided attention is extremely difficult to come by these days because there's notifications and things poking all day, every day.
1: Yeah, and I never had a lot of those notifications. I mean that's that's coming through rapid fire now.
0: Yeah. So it may have been
1: easier. But still, I think you have to do that even now. You've got to actually switch off all those things. Yeah.
0: that's the, Even if
1: it's for the next half a day or three hours or something, this is what I'm going to focus on.
0: That's the only place where you get true, deep work done because it takes, especially with some of the problems that we deal with here, it takes so long to understand all of the moving parts together Right. that if somebody pulls you out of that with a phone call, it's you're, It's forty-five minutes to get back into know, the.
1: And you have to get deep into these things to sort of, to be part of it to understand what's going on yeah, to solve it.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um. That's good. I like that. Um, the next one I have here for you is, and this is probably one of your strongest um, attributes. It's the strategy strategies for building effective teams and for building team members. The culture that is here at this office is, it's ri- its an environment where people can prosper. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that was by accident. So what are your thoughts on that? Or who was there somebody that influenced you on this? Or how would you describe your opinions on that team building? And... I mean-
1: yeah probably probably from a, at an early stage there wasn't any sort of structured philosophy or anything else it was just getting people that i uh, to join me here who I got along with um who had complementary skills not the same because we you have to build build a series of skill sets mm. and I think people you know that that we could have fun together and we could trust each other and rely on each other and you know i think that was a that those were sort of the main ingredients it was just people who um who who want you know who all work together Mm. for me it was very much more about the the person and the and their philosophy in life i mean you know we'd we'd have in in interviews you go through a whole series of questions and everything else but you can really tell very very quickly who what the the measure of the person is whether they, they're going to get along with everyone um how they're going to treat other people yeah uh, how we're all going to work together kind yeah of, yeah
0: so priority on almost the personality fit
1: personality fit and teamwork and teamwork yeah yeah and first.
0: then technical ability second
1: yeah yeah, because a lot of people have their different con- contributions, even, to, and it's not not everyone has to be strong, very strong technically. You know, there are other things that are needed.
0: Yes, and I think that almost anybody can learn anything if yeah. they're given a chance or if they're presented with the information in the right way. Right.
1: Right.
0: Um. So, how did you? I mean, it's one thing to say that, but there's almost 150 people here now, and you know, you had a much smaller office back then. So how did you build up?
1: Well, it was about 100, yeah, it was about 150. Well, we were 180, I think, in Canada when I when I stepped down as president. So that was just over 10 years ago. Um, a lot of it was in the structure we developed globally. Um, in In about... Well, let's just back up a little bit. I mean, the company... Had been around, you know, it's been around for 102 years now, yeah. Um, and it started off in southern Africa, but it was always a series of, of partnerships, which was how th- consulting engineers worked in those days. Yeah. People got invited to join. There was very little interaction between the partners and the, and the, the troops, as it were. Um, and then when different companies started being set up around the world, and individuals were sort of chosen to participate in those. But it, was, it wasn't it was a very transparent system, and it relied on a few individuals. Mm. And then we decided, I, I was part of a global management team. Uh, we, we called it the Global Operating Committee at that time. We sort of got together every year and tried to coordinate things we were doing. But we were tripping over each other in different countries and different clients and... It wasn't working very well. So we decided to amalgamate everything into a proper limited liability company, corporate structure globally with, with all the operating companies being owned by one holding company. Mm-hmm. And that started in 1999. Um, and it and it worked okay. Unfortunately, it, it coincided with a big downturn in the mining sector, which is a big part of our work. hmm and it also was proved to be very, very difficult to align all the objectives and um, um, sort of aspirations of the different offices. Globally, globally. Yeah. Because a lot of people didn't even know each other, and then you had some officers doing well financially, others doing poorly. If you if you amalgamate everything, uh, you may have pluses and minuses, sure. you know, but you may end up with a zero or negative when you. And yep. you mix it all together, and of course, that's very un. Uh, that that isn't very um, well taken by the guys making all the money.
0: Sure, sure.
1: Is the hard thing.
0: Yeah. But our, And I so guess. we
1: we changed the structure in two thousand and three, and we we made a very significant change, so we could actually come up with a, a kind of ownership structure which was which was. Uh, Based on a certain amount going to global, certain amount staying local, so global-local distribution of
0: of reward, let's say. So try to
1: balance it a little. Try bit. to balance it out, and that that's what we still have today. And it allows, and there, there's also um, a system of bringing in local ownership. It's always been employee owned, and uh, just having a structure where we could get get the right people on the bus. Mm. And in 2003, when we introduced that, you know, we, I, I, you know, I persuaded a number of people that the opportunities were here and just and come and join us. And I think all those people are still here today. So I think we, we it worked very well in terms of getting the right team together to move forward. Yeah. And then, you know, and then it's very much in the hiring process and in the, in the promotion within the company just focusing on what the key characteristics we were looking for, mm-hmm. so we established a criteria. Then, I think there's about sort of twenty or something key characteristics, and they all focus on on sort of teamwork, reliability, you know, um, integrity, just all the things you would like to see in in, in a
0: in a team, and so. Over the course of your career, did you feel there was a shift away from the the technical engineering work that you were doing and more into the economics and the business management and the, and the company management
1: um there was a little bit of a shift but I, but no I mean I think what the, the the structure we developed allowed us to keep technical specialists because a traditional sort of companies which were being being run ended up being run by accountants we found that there was no room for the uh, it was all about managers and yep. project managers absolutely yeah and we thought that was fundamentally wrong yep and so you needed very few managers you needed a lot of technical specialists and they had to have the see the career path before the, you know and they were the ones you had to retain you didn't have any of them you you really didn't have anything to offer
0: Many of my friends who are I went to school with who are very good engineers are getting pushed into management-type roles and they yeah. don't have the time to do the engineering work and they feel like those skills are rusting right. or they're not, they're not getting to do what they want to do. And I think that's very common in the industry. If you show right. some aptitude, you get pushed into management.
1: Yeah, well, what what we decided to do, I mean, we tried to have, you know, management, we figured can kind of, if you've got the right systems, just kind of takes care of itself. Yeah. And people don't have to waste a lot of time on that.
0: And like you said, certain people are very good at certain things and other things, and it takes certain personalities that yeah. could fit a role right. for right, whatever right. you may need.
1: Right, but we, we, you know, very early on, it was... We've always had a a philosophy here that principals, senior guys, have to be involved in project work. Yeah. You can't sit around and say, well, I'm a manager. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Um, Your perspectives on the future of, I guess, the future of the mining industry globally right now, it's um, what do you see in the next 20, 30, 40 years. The world's changing quick.
1: The world is changing rapidly um, and I guess that the main sort of drivers are one it's the whole move towards a green economy mm-hmm. is a major major driver where we're you know transitioning away from fossil fuels and and electricity is, is the big thing so storage and batteries and renewable energy um, all of which require a certain set of minerals, you know, and, and all of which require mining. Yeah. Um, so the mining industry is always going to be needed. Uh, the, the other sort of big s- sort of side venture here is, is AI, and I don't, I'm not quite sure where that's, how that's going to fit in, but that's going to have a major impact as well on what we do. Yeah. But I sort of see that more as a sort of philosophical, thing. And a physical change, although maybe you know AI will be used to do a lot of design work and um, conceptual development and things like that in the future. Yeah, but mining, I think, um, is going to be needed. Um, mining itself will evolve. There's a lot of automation in mining happening now. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you know, Nightpearl has to stay ahead of that.
0: When I you think of like um, China and India, both at like one point four billion people. Yeah. Africa is developing rapidly. It seems as though there's like a the majority of the world's population now are just starting to take off in, and they've skipped the industrial revolution that the West had, and now they're launching straight into whatever we have nowadays. And right. like how do you f- what do you think about the say the african continent on there's a lot of international investment in mining over there like how do you see the Af- how do you see african nations progressing over the next 50 years it seems like it's ripe for just huge development
1: yeah i mean i i inevitably they will i mean there's um yeah, a lot of minerals are found. there. There's a lot of um, lot of new mines going in. I mean, you know, on the on the negative side, people say, "Oh, you know, China is getting in there; is going to take over the continent." It's not actually what you see on the ground so much. There's a lot of different companies doing business in all all over Africa, um, and the Africa has its sort of a strange anomalies there because they jump certain development steps. You know. Um, they're some of the biggest users of cell phones from an early time. I mean, that was one of the huge markets there. But nobody ever signed a contract. You actually just bought minutes as you went along. So everyone got involved in the cell phone business. The, the little kids were selling books of minutes at the, uh, traffic lights. Yeah. Um, and they, they're way ahead of anyone for internet banking really well banking on your phone so i mean you know my, i've got a friend in zambia who's in farming all his his staff their wages go straight to their phone at the end of the month and they pay by phone and they don't have bank accounts
0: yeah and, and things like
1: that you know they're, they're, they're quite good at these these technology jumps and i think i think solar energy there is just going to make a huge impact to lives in africa in the next few decades.
0: I think that that's what I mean by saying like these developing nations have essentially skipped the industrial revolution because if they, if you have a smartphone now, suddenly your access to information is unlimited. Yeah. And yeah, like you say, there's, there's so many systems available to them now. And I guess they just need to get the, uh, to build the infrastructure
1: Right. And I think it's not going to be, they're not going to be building um, massive um, sort of power plants in one place. It's all going to be very um, distributed Mm -hmm. and, and a lot of reliance on renewables.
0: We don't do any business in China. Is that on purpose or has there been efforts uh, I I spent two or three years trying to get involved in
1: various projects in China in about the, between 1999 and 2002. Yeah, and it's um, I think we soon came came to the conclusion that it was just a the cultural gap is so big that you never know where you stand. Um, I think the rule of law doesn 't apply, so you can 't apply one set of legal standards mm-hmm. and so it was just sort of too difficult and not worth pursuing for the gains yeah and yeah, yeah so i think I think personally i wouldn 't suggest it 's a future market. I think the Chinese will be very good at what they what they do they 'll also be very good at learning from whatever they can from other people and doing it themselves.
0: Um, do you have any standout pieces of advice that you received from colleagues or mentors throughout the years? Was there anything that stuck with you that people told you? That's a you?
1: difficult question. Again, I mean, there's probably no sort of light bulb moment or anything else, but just um, dealing dealing with people and how, you know, and, and, and what's your role as a consultant? I think one of the very early th- things I learned actually from, from David Pearsall was there's always a solution. It may not be the one the client wants to hear, <laughs> but there's always a solution. You can never you never take it to a point where you say, you know, sorry, we, we, we can't help you.
0: We don't have an answer.
1: We don't have an answer, that's right. And... Um, you know yeah so in other words don't keep your blinkers on don't think that all you're being asked to do is design this you know there may be other things you can offer or help ways you can help
0: yeah um i was telling my my wife last night about uh i can't remember what it was some recent buddhist philosophy thing that i was reading where it's like every time you hear some bad news or some sort of challenging situation you just say yes and just accept and yes to everything. Right. So not to be a yes man, but yeah, I think I know what you mean. Have Be ready with something. Be ready with an yeah, answer. Yeah, be ready with something else. Have whatever. an option.
1: Yeah,
0: yeah. Um. Okay, we're getting close to close out time here. The final thing that I want to ask you is, well, two, actually I have two things remaining. The first one is, if you could go back and give advice to yourself as a younger engineer, or you could give advice to younger engineers now coming out of school, like what are the kinds of, what are the things that you would want them to remember that would help them along their throughout their career?
1: Um, I think the, the biggest thing that I wish I had done more of when I was younger was ask questions. And essentially, um, you know, ask the question, uh, show me or can I, you know, can you, can you just show me again how you got to this answer? Mm-hmm. Because I think, um, you know, there's a lot of assumptions that people assume that you know things and, and you don't. And you're, you're too shy to ask to sort of for fear of that you're giving something away. Yeah. And I just, I wish I'd had the courage to ask more.
0: I think that's very common for everybody in engineering because you're supposed to know how to do things. Exactly, that's the job.
1: Exactly. People used to turn to me and say, "Well, what's your opinion?" Well, I was probably the least qualified <laughs> in the group to give an opinion. Yeah,
0: yeah, um, yeah. That's really good. Um, I wish I'd asked more questions too. And, I mean, sometimes I regret asking questions because the answers that I got were like, "Oh God, I wish I didn't even. I wish I didn't open this can of worms." Um, yeah, but but you're right. That's a good one. Um,
1: I can't think of anything else offhand. I mean, I I, I always just sort of yeah.
0: Put anything my for a younger, younger for what about my, for a put young your
1: hand up for every opportunity? You don't know when another one's coming.
0: What about for the younger? Can you remember the younger Jeremy Hale? Like what you, what your expectations were, or what you were thinking when you came out? Um, you know, when you started working. Like if you look back now at that guy would you have any suggestions for him like you know don't take this personally or relax take your time like did you put a lot of pressure on yourself when you were a, when you were a younger engineer
1: um I, I I don't know. I, I can't. Don't recall anything. I mean, I I was you know again. It was a very. It was a. It was a good time for for us in terms. Of the world was our oyster. Yeah. I could have gone and worked on projects anywhere. Yeah. And and would have been fairly easy to get on board different different projects or different teams. Lots of big mega projects being built around the world, and so it was a kind of a kind of a you know. A, Smallest board of opportunities, let's say. Yeah. So I don't regret anything. I mean, never regret. Good. <laughs> Actually, the other big thing I would recommend, yeah, and never dwell on past failures. You know, you just you've learnt that, put it behind you. You're going to move on.
0: Move forward.
1: Because if you dwell on things, you will you will become a little depressed.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um. So yeah, make make the most of all the opportunities. If. If people are asking for somebody to stick their hand up to help, even if you're not sure you got the right answer, stick your hand up. Yeah. Because it's the people who who, who do, who get remembered and get maybe get chosen for another opportunity.
0: Yeah, that's good. Um, okay, last one. Book recommendations that you have or any any books or movies that have had an impact on you.
1: Wow. I mean, I I looked at that and I think, yeah, I mean, firstly, my memory is going. So, (laughs) um, I mean, lots and lots of books over the years. And I've, you know, grown up through a whole um, sort of evolution of social change and everything else. I mean, starting off in Central Africa in the 1950s. Zambia, or Nordic, which became Zambia, was actually very multiracial and lots of interaction between the local people and the, and the uh, let's call it, the British settlers. Yeah. Well, there weren't that many settlers, the, the British population, who were mainly government and, and mining people. But, you know, in South Africa, there was, there was apartheid on at that time. Um, so, you know, a lot of early books, there, there's a very famous book called um, Alan Payton, Cry the Beloved Country, which is, was an incredibly um, powerful book about lack of understanding between the races in South Africa. In
0: South Africa. In
1: South Africa, and it was a, an, an amazing book that influenced me a lot. I mean, I was I was quite fortunate. I came from a very a kind of broad-minded family, I guess. Yeah. My my grandfather was actually a was actually a teacher at a at a school in South Africa. Yeah. And a school for, for, for black kids. So he was very much sort of knew what was going on there and and he was quite an inspirational guy. Um, so I, I saw all that um, and the world, you know, has has changed a lot over but, but my whole sort of philosophy and we, we'll get back to books but it's just, you know, treat everyone with respect and everyone has to get on. Everyone has a valid
0: role in this world. That's... It's uh, even since I mean I'm not have been as around as long as you have but even the last um, 10 years, I've seen this like increased polarization in society and p- more people arguing and yeah. it's it's almost like um, the like the online social space it amplifies different extreme ideas and they spread.
1: And you have to belong almost to a tribe or to a, a point of view, which I, you know, I don't subscribe to. I mean, there's lots of different points of view, and everyone has some valid elements, perhaps. Yeah. Know, but everyone has something to say, and we've all got to we've all got to listen a lot more.
0: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Yeah.
1: Yeah, but in terms of books, for for um, I mean, I loved sort of all. I loved a lot of history books.
0: Um, like what kind of stuff? What kind of history? Uh, Ancient history or are we talking, bit, you know? A bit
1: of everything. I mean, okay. a bit of everything. I mean, uh, Seven Pillars of Wisdom was a, is a famous book about the Middle East, you know. Um, uh, one's about the, the First World War, the guns of August and Paris 1919. is That's an incredible book on how they tried to divvy up the world after the First World War and how, it all came unstuck very quickly
0: uh history now i love it but i remember as a kid you know i would tell my my dad would be trying to explain you know this is such interesting stuff you need to understand where why the world is the way that it is right my response back then was almost always like who cares like it's that's over it's in the past why are we dwelling on this stuff and now yeah, obviously now I understand how important it is. Yeah, it but comes
1: back and it comes it, back. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's
0: right. Um that's good. Uh there's a book called Sapiens by uh Yovel Harari, which yes. is uh, if you know I do you know that it. book? Yeah, I read it, yeah, yeah. Yeah, fantastic book. It's good. And a great yeah. sort of overview of the human yeah, species. How the human species evolved and where they went. Yeah. 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 There those are some good ones. I'm gonna add those to my list.
1: Yeah, and I and I like um you know, con- some contemporary novelist, Ian Ian McEwan. I don't know if you know him, just a beautiful writer in the English language.
0: Well, actually, um, that's something that I want to quickly ask you. I know I said this was the last thing is, but you're an incredible technical writer and technical writing is very difficult. And it's something that I have always tried to improve on all the time. Do you have tips on technical writing? Um, where I think I learned
1: the most experience I got from writing was at, as, as an undergraduate. I actually did engineering science and economics at Oxford. And on the economics side of it, I had one-on-one tutorials every week. I had to write an essay every week for my economics tutor and read it to him, which was quite an intimidating thing. <laughs> but in terms of, I just learned how to structure something so it's setting up the you know the, the background the frame the question how to frame it look at different different ways of approaching it um and coming to a conclusion and having to do that under pressure once a week for 3 years was <laughs> 2 years it was quite uh I, I think it helped me
0: oh yeah well When I read some of the stuff that you've written, it's uh, it's just the clarity and it's concise. That's nice to hear, James. What what have
1: I written? What what remind me of
0: things? Portions of reports and different things that I've seen, executive summaries and different things that I've Mm -hmm, looked at mm -hmm. throughout the years. Um, But it's just so hard to strip strip it down to its bare essentials, and it cannot. it can always be improved upon more. So, I think that's good. Uh, so, what would you say? What do you think? are, you, you frame the question. You, you set it up. Uh, clear introduction. You present the problem. And do you do you have that in your mind all the time? Like, can I get rid of this word? Do I need this word? Can I? Strip I think it the individual down? words
1: come out just when you get the flow of things. But yeah. the structure of the of the overall paper or report is the important thing. Yeah. So the background the focusing question, I mean why are you doing this? You know, that's
0: Yeah, I forget that sometimes. What are you <laughs> what
1: are you trying to answer? Yeah. <laughs> and then a number of different reasons why, you know why you get to an answer. So then you say what the answer is based on the following reasons. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
0: Okay. We're done. We're done. We're uh, done. I want to thank Jeremy for his time and for his advice. And I hope we get to chat again because we only scratched the surface on many things that I wanted to talk about. But thank you very much, Jeremy.
1: Thank you very much, James. This is inspiring, actually. I enjoyed doing it. Thank you.
0: Good. Thanks for listening to the Flowcode podcast. For deeper dives, please visit flowcode.dev and make sure you're subscribed to our newsletter to stay in the loop on new content and don't worry, we don't do spam. You can connect with me on LinkedIn if you have thoughts, questions or ideas, get in touch. I'm James O'Reilly, keep innovating and I'll see you in the next episode.